Now, I began a little series last week entitled God and Government. And if you recall that sermon, we looked at what we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Monarchy is not God's ideal form of government. Monarchy is not God's ideal form of government. In fact, God told the prophet Samuel, tell the people that they have rejected me in demanding a king and tell them all the things the king's going to do. He's going to have a standing army. You see, ancient Israel didn't have a standing army. They were a loose confederation of tribes that when an emergency arose, citizen soldiers arose to protect the nation. That was, that was the way of ancient Israel. And why is it that they are said to be rejecting God? Because God directed them. When God is the king over a people, he rules them through multiple rulers rather than through one particular man. And so they became taxed to death. They became conscripted to be in his army. And the army stood by him to make sure that what the king wanted done was done. And there would be no effective resistance to him. So God's ideal form of government we saw last week is what we might call an aristocracy. Not an aristocracy of blue bloods, but an aristocracy of elected rulers of the people. Analogous to the New Testament model of church government, which is there's no one man rule in the New Testament. Every local church had at least two elders, at least two bishops over it. There was no such thing as one guy at the top ever. And so we find that was God's pattern in the Old Testament. What do we call that form of government? We can think of three forms of government. We can think of a monarchy. And we certainly see examples of that and saw it with the recent death of Queen Elizabeth II. Then there is democracy. The trouble with democracy is that because people are slick and clever, they manipulate the people into thinking, we chose this, when in reality they didn't. And then there is the aristocracy, which we call a republic. Under a republic, the people elect their representatives and give the representatives real authority and real power to do things. If you look at ancient Israel, it was ruled by the elders of the people until they turned their back on God in 1 Samuel 8 and chose a king. Now today, we begin a subsection of this called dealing with tyrants. How long will we deal with tyrants? I don't know. And that's a play on words. But what we find here in the case of Nebuchadnezzar is a tyrant par excellence. You don't get any more tyrannical than the king of Babylon. He inherited his position from his father. And he was a real tyrant, as you can see here. God warned him and told him things. He had an amazing dream in chapter 2 that revealed to him the course of history from his time on down to the time of Christ. And what does he do with that? He was the head of gold. 
And after him was the, was the Medo-Persian Empire. And after the Medo-Persian Empire, the Empire of Greece, which was really headed by Macedonians. And after that, the Romans. And during the time of the Roman Empire, God would create his own kingdom that would be like a mighty rock that would come, not made with hands, that would come and smash this edifice of worldly power. Now, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was really a fool because he had been given a warning from God about the future. And instead of taking it seriously as being the head of gold, he decided to create an obelisk. And that obelisk would be made out of gold entirely. And so in a certain sense, he's saying, I'm going to be it. I'm going to reign forever. Ain't nobody going to replace me. And so he sets up a statue or an obelisk out of gold. It's his statue, and he wants everybody to worship him. Don't you see here? He views himself as a god, and he wants to be worshipped. And so he's given this command to everybody everywhere in his realm that when you hear all the fancy music, then you're supposed to bow down and worship my statue of gold. Now, there's something interesting here. When you read in verse 8, you discover that some people, these are the wise men, or the astrologers, or the magi, who exercised great authority. They had had their bacon saved by people like Daniel in chapter 2. And yet, quickly, they resent the Jewish people. And you see what they say. They come to King Nebuchadnezzar in verse 9, and they are all very polite. And he says, and they say there in, look at verse 12, but there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they ignore your command. You know, there's a little lesson here. Fly below the radar. Fly below the radar. When you start getting into a position of prominence, you're going to be in danger. Why? Because people get jealous of you. Jealousy is part of the human condition. It is what we all have by nature. Now, grace can overcome nature, but we all are jealous. Deep down inside, we resent when other people get promoted over us, particularly if you think they were not as smart as you were or as hardworking as you were. We have that. That's just part of human nature. It's part of human depravity. And that's the whole trouble with kings is human depravity. There's no aspect of the human nature that is not affected by sin, including our ability to understand rightly reality. And so they report them. Now notice reaction in verse 13 of Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage. You know, that's an interesting, what makes you lose your temper? You ever thought about it? Anybody here ever never lost your temper? We've all lost our tempers, haven't we? I learned something years ago that when I get mad, it's because there's something I haven't given up to God. When I get mad, it's something I haven't given up to God. Do you know my children 
and they were growing up, had a responsibility to show respect to me and to do what I told them to do. But I did not have the right to be respected or obeyed. It sounds tricky, doesn't it? My children, when they were growing up, had the responsibility to show me respect and to do what I told them to do. But I never had the right to be respected or obeyed. You see, when I refuse to give up my rights, it lays me open to a temper tantrum. And that's what we have here. Nebuchadnezzar has a temper tantrum. He will be respected by everybody everywhere. And his statue, this gold statue, not just the golden head, but the whole obelisk is gold, will be worshipped. And so he flies into a rage. And then he instructs the three Jewish leaders, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, if you're prepared to worship, we'll just let bygones be bygones. Because he knew they were valuable. He knew they were competent. He knew that they were intelligent. And he knew something else. They always did what he told them to do. Except, and that's where we're going this morning, except. And so he says... But if you do not worship it, that's the last sentence there in the verse. If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And then notice what he says, top of page 1375. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? You see, he believes in his divinity. Have you ever heard of the divine right of kings? That's a wicked doctrine. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar believed in his own divinity. Have you ever thought about World War II and how hard it was to take Okinawa? Why was it hard to take Okinawa? Because the emperor of Japan was divine. He was the son of the sun god. And therefore, no one in the entirety of the Japanese uh, people, among the Japanese people, could compare to him in any way whatsoever. The religion of Japan is called Shinto nationalism. Shinto nationalism. It means the emperor is at the top. And it's not just the top with people that are less than he is. The difference is that those who were not the emperor had no more value than a feather. That was the meaning of their life. The purpose of their lives was to serve the God who was visible in the emperor of Japan. And that's why people were willing to commit suicide. That's why Japanese people would rather walk off of a cliff in Okinawa than surrender. And that's why Japanese soldiers would not surrender, because they viewed their eternal destiny tied up in it. You know, that's really something formidable to come against, isn't it? And so the emperor of Japan, Haruhito, was viewed as God, as the literal, actual son of the sun god. And this is what we have with Nebuchadnezzar. And so now notice then in verse 16, because this is how you deal with tyrants. Shadrach, Meshach, 
And Abednego replied to the king, You so-and-so? There ain't nothing going to Is that how they replied to the king? Did they have their fist raised? Did they curse him? Did they call down judgment on him? What did they do? O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Why do they not need to defend themselves? First of all, if the king's law is right, they're wrong. But if the king's law is wrong, they're right. And this is what they go on to say. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Now that's an undebatable proposition, isn't it? When you face trouble, and you're going to face trouble in the coming week, all of us will face trouble in the coming week. Man who is born of woman is a few days, and born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. When you face trouble, you have to remember something. God is able to rescue me out of this. And we, as Christians, ought always to be able to say that. You know, when Jesus was facing Calvary, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in the, God, in the Gospel of Mark, he prays, Abba, that's a term of endearment for one's father in Aramaic, all things are possible for you. And so Jesus confesses that God can do anything. Do I believe that if I needed to fly above you right now, that I could do it if God ordained it? I believe that. I believe I could fly right over the top of these candles, and I believe I could fly over the top of the pews. I don't doubt that, if that's what God ordained. Because God can do anything. God can stop the course of the planets. God can make it appear from the perspective of earth that the sun itself actually stands still by causing where planet earth is not to rotate. You say, well, how could that be with the laws of gravity? I don't know. I know this, that the laws of gravity only work because God has ordained it to be. And I can predict with regularity what's going to happen when I let go of these keys. Somebody's going to wake up. <laughs> Who will it be? Not even dropping keys. But I can predict with regularity what's going to happen when I let go of keys. But do I know for a fact that will always happen? No, I do not. Because the world and every molecule in this world and every molecule in every solar system, in every galaxy in our universe is under the absolute and total control of God. He knows everything and for God to know something is to control it. There's nothing impossible with God. You might have cancer. Can God kill every single solitary cancer cell in your body right now without medicine? Yes, he can. You may get involved in a terrible wreck. Can God cause the forces of nature to go in such a way that the door of the car in which you're riding becomes a shield to protect your body? God can do that. He did that years ago when my wife was hit by a log truck. 
in a Toyota pickup truck and the door collapsed around her to protect her body. God can do anything. Now notice that's what Nebuchadnezzar's subjects, the people who are respectful to him and have always done what he asked them to do. That's what they say. Our God's able. But now they go beyond that. Now notice there's a, they affirm something else. Notice the next clause in, in, verse, uh, in verse 17. And he will rescue us from your hand. O king, he will rescue us. That's, as we see next, the tentativeness of faith. The tentativeness of faith. Because look at the very next verse, 18. But if he doesn't, this is an important thing to affirm in life. God's going to do this for me. But even if he doesn't, do you see how they're believers? Do you see how they're trusting in God? They're trusting in his absolute power. And they're trusting in his benevolent love for them to the point that they say, he's going to deliver us. But then they've got the caution. But even if he doesn't, I'm submitting to you, that's real faith. Real faith is affirming what you believe God has ordained for your life for good. But always remembering this, while the Bible is infallible, my understanding of the Bible and its application to my life are fallible. Many times I thought God was going to do something, but for one reason or another, he didn't do it, even if he doesn't. So faith, first of all, is absolute. God's able to do it. God's going to do it. But even if he doesn't, and what is the even if he doesn't uh, really about? It's about saying, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Even if God doesn't give me what I believe I truly need, even if I'm not delivered, even if I die, even if I'm lying on a bed of affliction, even if after all these cries to God and prayers and trying to be obedient, being anointed with oil in the name of the Lord and all of that, but if he doesn't, I'm still going to praise God. You know, in my own life experience, I wrote about Sandy's experience when she was on Monday, October the 10th, 1988, run over by the rear tandem axle of a log truck that was jacked up on the back. As she and the lady who was driving the little Toyota pickup entered the old Calcasieu River Bridge outside of Heinston, Louisiana, the rear tandem ca axle came off and they had nowhere to go. Guardrail on the right, guardrail on the left, log truck in the one lane. And the rear tandem axle rode right over the top of that Toyota pickup truck. I was in my office when it happened, and my good friend Merrill Blackburn, who's now with the Lord, contacted me and said, Bob, I just got this phone call. And we tried calling all the hospitals and couldn't find anything. And on that day, Sandy was flown by helicopter to Christus St. Francis Cabrini Hospital. And while she was there, she disappeared. And they couldn't find her for three days. Oh, her body was there. But she had an experience of going to heaven and being with the Lord. And the reason I believe that that is 
actually what happened is how it changed my wife's life. Because before that, she was the same kind person she had always been. But she became totally free from fear because Sandy had been raised by her mother to be afraid of so many things, even thunderstorms. But after that, she could take on anything in terms of fear. And once she was able to stare a man right in the face who was intent on doing her grave harm. And she just spoke to him clearly and calmly and he got on his bicycle and rode away from our house. Fear. Now I want to talk about myself for a moment. I have to deal with my fear day by day. Because ever since then, my sense of, I wonder if Sandy's going to be coming back. She gets up early in the morning and walks. This morning she got up and was walking shortly after 5.30. I'm studying. And the thought went through my head. What happens if somebody hits Sandy with a car? Our neighbor was worried and so we have these reflective vests. So I have to deal with that. See, faith is an assurance that God can do anything. And it's the persuasion that he will do that we ask him to do. But there's always that sense of caution. But if he doesn't, and you know how I deal with that fear? I picture the worst things in the world, the things I'm most afraid of happening. And I picture them as an ugly mask. And when I pull the mask off, there is the smiling, loving face of Jesus. So here is what. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, if God doesn't deliver us, we're going to still go on loving God. We're going to still go on serving God. We're not going to do what you've told us to do. We're going to serve God. Now, we're going to hold our hands there, and like a Saturday morning matinee movie that when you're a kid and you say, come back next week and you'll find out what happened uh, when uh, whoever it was, Lash LaRue or Roy Rogers, uh, looks like he's going over the cliff. I want you to turn with me to the right, to the book of Jude, the book of Jude. Next to the last book of the Bible, the book of Jude. And I want you to see something here. And this is a fundamental principle. And so we're going to say, to turn to page 1910, Jude verse 8. Jude verse 8. How do you deal with tyrants? Again, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not yield. They will not worship the gods of the Babylonians or bow down and worship the golden obelisk of King Nebuchadnezzar. But they do it how? They don't do it in a defiant, ugly, rebellious, wicked way. They don't shake their fist at King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is an important principle. Look at verse 8 as Jude talks about certain wicked people. Jude verse 8. In the very same way these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. Reject authority. What I want you to understand is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not reject the authority of King Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't bring a railing accusation against him. They didn't cuss him out. They didn't say, who are you? They submitted to him. 
in every matter, but to, and never forget this, you submit to authority in every single way, but two ways. One, you will always acknowledge the Lord. You will not deny the Lord. To obey earthly rulers when they command us to deny the Lord is a great and terrible sin. And they will not sin. What is sin? Sin is any transgression of God's law. So there are two areas where we resist the authority without rejecting the authority. This is a basic truth that we'll get into more, God willing, next week when we discover what happens to Roy Rogers. Notice what's said here in verse 8. They reject authority. Look at verse 9. This is very powerful. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Is there a lesson in that for you and me? You know, I've heard many earnest Christians rail against Satan. We need to be very careful when we're dealing with supernatural powers. And never forget, earthly rulers have supernatural powers behind them. The emperor of Japan, the sun god, the demon spirit, the great principality over Japan was behind Hirohito. And never forget, the prince of Babylon was behind Nebuchadnezzar. So you're dealing with supernatural forces where you're dealing with human human rulers. And you have to be careful how you speak to them. I'm struck with this. Michael, Michael, the pure, holy angel Michael, without sin, powerful, one of the great archangels along with Gabriel, and he's dealing with the devil. He's dealing with the devil over the body of Moses because God values the human body. Moses was with the Lord, but his body was on earth. I don't know what the devil wanted to do with Moses' body. I could speculate, but that's worthless. But when Michael is arguing with the devil over the body of Moses, what does he do? Does he say, you stinking filthy beast, you rebelled against God, and I rebuke you. Did he do that? No, he didn't. He spoke respectfully to the devil. Should we fear the devil? No. But we should be aware that the devil has great power. And we should be aware that earthly authorities have great power and that there are supernatural forces behind them. So how we deal with tyrants must be, never forget this, with respect, never in a railing accusation, never defiance, but passive resistance. I will not worship your gods. I will not bow down to your idol. 
And as we survey the book of Daniel again next week, God willing, we discover that this is what the the Daniel book is all about. It's resisting tyranny in a godly and respectful way by trusting God. Because who has power over the devil? The Lord Jesus Christ who conquered Satan. The Lord Jesus Christ, your King, your Savior, who will never allow you ultimately to be tested beyond your ability to withstand it, but will, along with the temptation, provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So we close with these thoughts. We live in a world of tyrants. It's always been that way from the day that the devil rebelled against God and led against God a massive number of angels who became demon spirits, fallen principalities and powers. And the kingdom of hell is very different than the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of hell has a unity, but it's a unity that is rooted in abject fear and jealousy. How come that principality gets to win this game and I have to lose? So the kingdom of hell has Satan at the top and all of the spirits that are underneath him, principalities and powers, and all the lesser demons, they obey out of fear and with great resentment and jealousy and rage against each other, but never openly showing it, never defying. What is the kingdom of heaven like? The kingdom of heaven is the king of love, my shepherd is. The Lord Jesus Christ's kingdom is a kingdom ruled by love, not by fear. And if we will submit to God our whole life and lay it before Him, we may rest assured that He who guards the hairs of our head and controls the death of a sparrow will take care of us for eternity. And in this life, even if we have to go through a severe trial and even death, what is death? For the believer, death is gain. So trust in Jesus. Keep your powder dry. (laughs) Trust in Jesus. Obey the Lord at all costs. Obey the government. Whatever government God has put you under, even if it's full of tyrants, as in the case of Babylon. When you have to resist, do so with respect and dignity. But resist by not obeying unlawful commands. And, not, and by n- never denying the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because, listen, Jesus is all there really is in life. All you got. When it all boils down, and when Social Security goes belly up, when the stock market goes belly up, when the dollar goes cattywampus, when the powers that be outlaw cash, when whatever is going to happen is going to happen by their design, you may rest assured that the Lord Jesus Christ is fully in control and not a hair will fall from your head. He who could rebuke the wind and the sea will rebuke your enemies and preserve your life until your purpose on earth is complete. And at that point, you go to heaven. There's not a soul in heaven who would gladly, who would ever want to come back here. That was the trouble Sandy had when she realized that now she was back on earth 
with five children from a four-year-old to a senior in high school and my mother who suffered a measure of senile dementia and all of the chaos between the walls. Why did you bring me back here? If you just could understand how glorious heaven is, you wouldn't be afraid. You'd trust in the Lord and you would not obey wicked commands. May we pray. Lord, we pray that we will always trust in Jesus. We thank you that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to wash our sins away. Lord, we thank you that he died so that we would have eternal confidence of being with you forever. And we, he died, Lord, to conquer Satan, to conquer fear, and to make us ultimately one day victorious along with him over all the powers of darkness. For Jesus' sake, amen.